From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. New and expecting mothers are frequently told that their lives will change once their baby arrives. They don't always hear how, especially when it comes to their careers. Caitlin Collins is a sociologist at Washington University in St. Louis. She conducted interviews with mothers around the world and found American moms feel far more stressed out than women in three other developed countries. She'll be at the University of Georgia on Friday to talk about her book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. And connecting with us today from St. Louis, Caitlin Welcome. Thank you. All right. So you looked at motherhood in the U.S., Italy, Germany, and Sweden. What questions were you setting out to answer? I was curious about whether women living in countries that have very different work-family policies to support women's roles, both as mothers and as workers, influence the way that mothers operate in their day-to-day lives, as well as the cultural attitudes that influence moms' abilities to manage these two very important roles in their lives. And I found, of course, that uh, in, in fact, policy and culture do play an enormous role in influencing how moms make decisions about employment and motherhood. Well, so right off the bat, you say, let's face it, it's harder to be a working mother in the United States than any any other country in the developed world. You found American moms far more stressed out and more overwhelmed. How did they describe that experience? Moms described overwhelming stress and exhaustion. And American mothers talked constantly about time in ways that Sweden, German, and Italian mothers did not. They talked about not having enough time, fitting in more time, squeezing in time, running out of time. And uh, women seemed stressed to the max. And To be honest with you, they also cried more often during our interviews, uh, most often in response to one question that I hadn't anticipated this response to. And that was the question, everyone has their own ideas about what it means to be a good mother. But to you, what does it mean to be a good mother to your children? So did you find these kind of answers and maybe even the tears across race and socioeconomic demographics, which are usually the ways that we stratify sociological research? Great question. I The majority of my interviews were conducted with middle-class mothers, primarily white mothers in the European sample, and a a wider diversity of racial and ethnic minorities here in the U.S. because language wasn't as big a barrier to recruitment for the study. And it's really important to drive home the point that the sample of mothers that I was speaking to, these middle-class, primarily white mothers, these women are sort of a best-case scenario. And if they are this stressed out, if they have the resources, both financially and socially, to navigate employment and motherhood with uh, this advantage status, imagine how much more difficult life is for mothers who are, for example, low income, who experience racial discrimination in the labor market, um, women who are, who, are, who are going it alone and don't have partners, for example. And the work family policies here in the U.S. are not designed to support families. We think of families here in the U.S. as a private responsibility, which of course means those with more financial resources have the greater ability to manage both employment and caregiving. So those are the women who are most likely to be able to take a day off if their child is sick, for example. Exactly, or not to not get fired if they do need to take that day off. This is interesting because the idea of family, this is central to and valued in American culture. So how is the U.S. supporting or not supporting families of working mothers? This is what I find so paradoxical about the U.S. case. We talk about U.S. families as being the backbone of our society, the foundation upon which everything else is built. And while that may be true, culturally speaking, politically, again, we think of families as a private responsibility. You hear people saying all the time, often when I call into shows like this, folks call in the show to say to me, I don't want to pay for someone else's kids. 
the reality, of course, is that caregiving benefits all of us, those of us who have children, those of us who do not. Children themselves are a public good, right? They benefit everyone as future workers, taxpayers, and citizens. And here in the U.S., again, we think of families as being up to the, up, it's, it's up to families themselves to manage these responsibilities. The U.S. has no national support system for caregiving. We have no paid maternity leave. We're one of two countries on the planet that doesn't offer that. It's just the U.S. and Papua New Guinea. We have no national social insurance system, no national system for caregiving and child care. Uh, we have very, very few uh, requirements around paid vacation and sick days. There's no federal minimum standard for, work, or for employers to offer any of that to their employees. And, and are those what means it, it, keep, it keeps women in dire straits in their family life. But what do all of the countries that you spoke with or women that you spoke with in other countries? And of course, you looked at their political and social welfare and their social safety nets as well. Did they all offer those kind of benefits to women? They sure did. And, and often Americans look to Europe as sort of this gender equality nirvana, thinking that things must be perfect there. And they're not perfect. But to be honest, they're far better than what we have here in the U.S. Every one of those countries has a national child care system. So either starting from the ages of one or three years old, children have a guaranteed spot in a high quality subsidized child care facility. Uh, all of them have paid leaves that ranges from five months in Italy to a year in Sweden and Germany. Um, in, in a country like Sweden, they also encourage men to take equal uh, part of family life by taking not only paternity leave, but also to share in, in as you pointed out, the, the daily ins and outs of caregiving, which might mean taking a day off work, et cetera. And so, again, these policy supports, as well as the cultural attitude that men should play a bigger role in family life, made it easier for women to reconcile their responsibilities at home and at work. Well, attitude is one thing. Policy is another thing, as you're pointing out to us. But social, societal, cultural mores influence how we are expected to perform in the office and at home so how much of the emotion that you heard from women about their inadequacy, let's say, was driven by the mother's own expectations of themselves? Great question. Women's own expectations of themselves can't be understood devoid of their cultural environment or context, right? The ways that we think about what it means to be a good mother uh, or a good partner or a good worker are deeply embedded in our societal context. And here in the U.S., um, sociologists use the phrase intensive mothering to talk about... Say that again. I'm sorry. Your voice was a little clear. They use the term what? Intensive mothering. Intensive mothering. Okay. Intensive mothering. The idea that motherhood should be time intensive. It should be all consuming. Women's full attention, energy, time and commitment should be to their children and their families. And this is an impossible ideal to live up to. No one can dedicate 24 hours a day. And what it ends up setting up women for is failure. It makes women feel that they're failing their children. And I think that helps explain the stress and guilt and uh, tears that you mentioned earlier when it came to the interviews with moms here in the U.S. Caitlin Collins, please hold on with us. Caitlin Collins is going to be at UGA on Friday to talk about her book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. When we come back, we'll talk more about the role of men or partners in caregiving and also about that guilt. As Professor Collins is reminding us, no worthwhile endeavor from raising a child to creating a vibrant marketplace for ideas can be done alone. That many hands make light work approach has allowed public radio to thrive for decades. So today we're not asking you to pay GBB's electric bills or fees to NPR, just asking you to do your part and making on second thought and everything you hear on GBB possible. The amount, that's up to you. What counts most is that we hear from you. You can go to gpb.org and click donate or call us at 
1-800-242-4788. Thanks so much for your support. Here's Tom Barkley and Robert Jimison to tell you more. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, and sociology professor Caitlin Collins is with us. Her work expands upon new findings from the Pew Research Center that about half of U.S. parents say working makes it harder for them to be, quote, good parents. Interestingly, about the same amount feel like they are not giving enough at work. Caitlin's book, Making Motherhood Work, is her study of working mothers' daily lives in four countries, which makes the case for a revolution in policy and culture to adequately support them. She's speaking at UGA on Friday. So, Caitlin, back to this idea. From your studies of Germany, Italy, Sweden, what motivate them in policy and infrastructure and culture to make such a strong support for working mothers? Well, it's very clear that supporting women and their ability to reconcile employment and caregiving is, of course, good for women and for families, but it's also good for businesses and the economy. So a number of these countries, for example, in Germany, were facing a skilled labor shortage as well as low fertility rates. And the research is, again, abundantly clear that when you help women reconcile their roles as mothers and as paid workers, this enables women, of course, to decide to have children and to return to the labor force quickly after having them. So, of course, instrumentally speaking, this is advantageous both for businesses and the national economy. It's, of course, a feminist issue uh, as well, right? The idea that women should be able to do this, uh, to be able to participate in the paid labor force as well as care for families is uh, a matter of gender inequality. The fact that, that women tend to bear the responsibility for family life is a matter of national policy. So a country like Sweden, for example, where gender equality is a cornerstone of their social policy, encourages and in fact expects men to participate equally in family life and in breadwinning just like women. Well, you made the point earlier about, you know, we tend to think of in America, these are our children, but when you decide to go to work and then it's your problem, you're taking, you're on your own. I think you're on your own is something I saw a lot in this book among American women. So do you think that Let's look at this economically for the U.S. There's this idea that still it's it's a choice for women to work. I mean, what do women what does women's work mean in the American economy? In the 21st century, it's economically necessary for most families to have two earners to stay afloat. And so it's no longer a choice whether or not women are working outside the home. The choice is entirely constrained by the financial realities of life today, and uh, especially post-recession, especially in the fact that we see declining wages over the past several decades. This means that families are financially constrained in their options. And this means usually with families that have two parents, both need to work outside the home. So the equation is a very simple one, though a confusing one. If both parents have to work outside the home and they have children who are younger than five or six years old before they start attending uh, elementary school, who in the world is taking care of those children? And the reality is that families, again, who are better resourced, more financially able to provide high quality care, send their kids there. And we end up seeing dramatic disparities between kids who have access to very high quality early childhood education and care and those who don't. And this has consequences for children across the life course, as well as, of course, for future employers, taxpayers and citizens. Well, the the willingness to pay for other people's children, as you said earlier, is not universally loved in these countries. There's been a big backlash against high tax rates in some quarters in Sweden, Italy and Germany. So do you find that criticism of dependency or the the idea of the welfare mom uh, using the terms that they use in those countries? countries that, is gain- that have gained so much ground here in the U.S. in those other countries. In these other countries, there certainly is a backlash, and it's racially coded, this backlash, to be honest with you. So we talk in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of vitriol against folks who are immigrants here in the U.S. This is a similar conversation that you're hearing 
in some pockets of society across these three countries in Europe. Of course, the reality is that it's important for us to support families across the socioeconomic spectrum, regardless of their background or their nationality, because all of these families are participating in our economy. And again, in order for our economy to thrive, we need stable, healthy families. And in the U.S., again, we don't think of supporting families as a public good. But what could be more important than stable, healthy families? These are European countries, the three that I conducted interviews in, have already reached consensus on this decades ago and understand that, again, it's in everyone's best interest to support families, whether or not you have children, right? And here in the U.S., we already do this. We have universal education for children ages K through 12. Why don't we extend this logic a few years earlier in a life course for kids and think about what it would what would, what it would mean not, not only for families, but for businesses and the economy to, to universalize, for example, pre-K so that all children starting, let's say, at the ages of two or three have a safe, healthy and productive environment to spend their time when their parents work outside the home. Well, that is uh, the number of Democratic candidates are including presidential candidates, I should say, are including policies for family leave, pre-K and child care in their platforms. But since you're talking about policy shifts also requiring a cultural shift, a shift in thinking, how does that work? How do you push that up the hill? Oh, man, that's a million dollar question. I wish I had an easy answer for it. I think policy and culture, we have to think of being as deeply intertwined with one another, right? Sometimes policies are implemented that are quite progressive, and it sort of pulls cultural attitudes along with it. And sometimes the reverse happens. For example, in Germany, they, they for a long time had three years of paid maternity leave available for families. And of course, this is hugely disadvantageous to women's career prospects, their lifetime earnings attainment, for example. And cultural attitudes said that most women did not want to work, uh, to want to stay home for three years uh, and experience the sort of penalties that happen for mothers once they return to the labor force. And they ended up reducing the, the paid parental leave available to families there to one year, which boosts women's labor force participation. And that's an example of how cultural attitudes sort of pulled policy in a more progressive direction. So here in the U.S., it's abundantly obvious that families want paid parental leave. They want some sort of paid family leave to handle illness, whether that's for children or themselves, uh, perhaps elderly parents, for example. The, the consensus here in the U.S. is clear. What we need is a political will to pass these policies. Families are ready and on board, as are businesses. In places like California that has had a paid parental leave system that's gender neutral for more than a decade now, Employers report either a neutral or a positive impact on worker productivity, on profitability, on turnover, and on morale. So again, yes, these policies are beneficial for mothers, for fathers, and for children, but they're also beneficial for businesses and for our national competitiveness uh, in the 21st century global economy. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for speaking with us. Happily, thank you. Caitlin Collins is going to be talking on Friday at UGA about her book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. There are details on our website, gpbnews.org. We're going to leave you with the song Mother by Sugarland. I'm going to resist singing happy, birth to my happy birthday to my mother. She's 93, Patricia Prescott. 11 kids. She did a lot of work in and out of the home. Thanks so much to, for listening to On Second Thought during our fall fun drive. We're taking just a couple of minutes to remind you that it is your support that keeps this program and everything that you hear on GPB. Political Rewind, when you listen to Morning Edition in the morning, all things considered in the afternoon, all the programs that inform you and make a difference in your life. We are here for you because of you and your community of supporters. It's our fall fun drive at time of year when we ask you to do your part. So call us, 800 800- 222-4788 or go to gpb.org and click on donate. And thanks.
We are back with On Second Thoughts from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Flux Projects is back at it. The arts organization produces temporary events that connect people to creativity and to place. You may recall the waterfall sing-along at Pond City Market that we learned about earlier this year. Beginning tomorrow, Flux is transforming that market into an acoustic playground. A number of artists are using sound as the primary medium to reveal hidden dimensions of the historic building turned ultra-popular destination for food and shopping. No And like all things Flux, it is temporary, running just through Sunday, September 29th. Ben Coleman is curator of the event. He's also a contributing artist and joins me in the studio. Hello, Ben. Hello, Virginia. Nice to have you with us. So we just did hear a little sound that visitors will hear at Flux, Pond City Market. As a curator, how did you approach hearing the sound of a place? Um, Flux... uh asked me to be involved in this because of my background in sound and um, Pond City Market in terms of hearing the set of the space it's such a loud building it's so busy and that's something that was really appealing to me um, because so much sound art is placed in in quiet gallery spaces and um, those gallery spaces aren't made for sound either uh, it's, it tends to be places where we walk very carefully and we, we're hushed and right. it's very reverberant and quite a uh, sonically unkind space so I like the idea of taking sound art into a place where it's going to have to actually blend in and work with the, the noise that's already there. Right, this old industrial building with, you know, and stairs that clank as you go up. And this location in the past has been an amusement park, it's been a baseball park, and was known to many Atlantans for a long time as the Sears and Roebuck and Company building. But it got its name from Ponce de Leon Springs. What are the origins of that name? Um, I believe that a doctor decided that he was going to name it that. He wanted to um, convince everyone that the water had restorative powers. Um, and they tasted of sulfur, so everyone assumed as it was kind of nasty to drink that it must be good for you. Um, and it really took off, so it became a popular destination. He would actually sell the water as well. I can't remember what the cost was. It was something like a, a nickel for a drink. Among the participating artists is Trisha Hersey. We've had her on the show. She's the oh, founder great. of the NAP Ministry. And we're listening to her piece now. It's called A Resting Place, which touches on this idea of rejuvenation of these springs. What can you tell us about the elements that went into this piece? So I had the privilege of working with Trisha on this piece. So I put the, the sound aspect together. Um, the, sp- the space where it's actually situated is, is sonically interesting. It's where a lot of the um, air conditioning lets out, um, above a lot of the outdoor seating for the rest on the mm-hmm. way to the belt line. So there is this constant white noise drone up there. It's about 80 decibels. It's really loud. And we decided to actually use that in our favor and integrate it into the project. Um, so Trisha's practice being all about rest as a uh, form of resistance and white noise has become so popular to help people sleep as we lead such busy, loud lives now. So we've integrated the score in. So if you imagine, it's, it's meant to sit alongside this constant hum of air conditioning vents. Yeah, and you can hear there's spirituals, No More My Lord is playing at one point. Then we have Lightning Long John, which is a prison work song. This was recorded yeah. by the Lomaxes back in the day. It was very interesting to take what were work songs 
and you know, almost always people who are who are working against their will in some respects, and try and integrate those into a into a relaxation atmosphere. And the, even the pace, in fact, of the waves, uh, the, the sound of the waves, it's actually white and pink noise alternating, mixed with human breathing. Um, and we were tapping into the concept that if you breathe uh, five times. Uh, so once in, once out, five times a minute, then it actually does all kinds of interesting things to your physiology. So we, we were hoping that even on some subconscious level, anyone who hears the piece will actually start to slow down. And it's so it's, you know, I, I had initial ambivalent feelings about Pont City Market as a place where, which had high price points. But when you dig into the history of the building, it's so intertwined with the history of Atlanta as a segregated space. And the fact that everyone comes together now, there's 50,000, 60,000 people will be there this weekend. Mm. Any weekend, in fact. It's, it's, a, it's a really fantastic thing. So will they walk around and just hear these sounds in different spaces? Yes. Um, sighting the projects was so fun. So we have things in stairwells, in kind of underground, almost like a subterranean vibe um, underneath the food court. Um, so, you know, we're going to be using things like blue lighting to indicate where projects are. Mm-hmm. And there will be volunteers on site to help people locate the projects. Um, but they're all scattered around in some of the more sonically interesting and kind of isolated areas. So what is your piece like? Well, I have the privilege of taking over the PA system. It's easy to miss because it is background Muzak, essentially, they normally are playing there just to kind of soften the retail experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing kind of anti-Muzak. It's going to be a, a, a long series of uh, the kinds of sounds you wouldn't expect to hear in that environment. Like what? Um, I actually have crowdsourced a lot of them. So at my curator talk, I handed out cards and talked about music and memory and sound and memory and asked people for the sounds that provoke powerful memories for them. So uh, howler monkeys in Brazil... There was one person which was the sound of their father snoring while a golf uh, game is on the TV. (laughs) Hello? Hello? I think I saw that ball about three times. It did. Um, There were some really fun ones, very specific ones in terms of like the starter on a 54 Cadillac. So I had to go out and find those, um, which has been really fun. Scraping toast. Some, some really good ones. So, so people will be able to hear that when they're walking through the market? Uh, yes. Uh, well, this PA is in the, uh, the parking lot um, on both sides of the building and um, also in the courtyard area. So I'm really looking forward to having some people actually stop and be like, what is that? And that, that's kind of an p- approach for the whole event is to give people access to um, being more present and kind of reevaluating the space around them using their ears instead of their eyes because we're almost always just giving primacy to our vision. So, Is there a particular sound for you that connects you to your memory? Um, I have a few. Uh, there's some hold music for USCIS, Customs and Immigration. Um, because I've, over the years, spent a lot of time on hold waiting to talk to them. And I have my citizenship exam next month. Uh, so I've been boning up on my facts well, and my U.S. history. Best of luck. So, I, you, you will probably do better than a lot of Americans at passing that test, from been, what I understand. It's been a real education for me. So. <laughs> ben Coleman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Ben Coleman, he's curator and contributing artist for Flux Pond City Market, which begins tomorrow and runs through September 29th, which is Sunday. And as we head into the break, we're going to keep listening to A Resting Place, Trisha Hersey's contribution to the event. She encourages us to reject our workaholism and rest.
Now, you rely on GPB to deepen your understanding of our region and its history through sound. And we rely on you and listeners across the state to help cover the costs of bringing you all the conversations that connect you to the people and the culture that make up Georgia and the Southeast. That's just how public radio works. And that's what our Fall Fun Drive is all about. Our doors are open, and we invite you to come on in and listen and join the GPB family. Don't sleep on it. Go ahead now while you're listening. Here's how. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Shanti Shanti. The Atlanta band combines rock and roll with harmonies over twanging guitars, and here's their new single, Radio Dream. Shanti Shanti's new album, Someone, Anyone, comes out this Friday, and they're celebrating the release with a show at 529 in Atlanta on Friday before heading out on a world tour. We invited two of the band's four members to add some tracks to our Georgia playlist. Here are Anna and Julia with their picks. Hi, my name is Julia. I play drums in Atlanta band Shanti Shanti. I chose People Every Day from Arrested Development because it's an awesome song and they're an awesome band. At the beginning of the song with the call and response, that's kind of like their signature thing that they do. It's such a like a hype way to start a song you know it gets you like super excited to hear it so in people every day by uh, arrested development that song is a nod to sly and the family stone song i am everyday people which is an amazing band too i don't know if that's one of their favorite artists but i imagine that perhaps it is because they have the same kind of message that you know, all religions and all races have to live together. But that song is about that. It's uh, respecting one another and where they come from. I think this album that this is from came out in 1992, so I would have been 12. And uh, I remember being like moved by it then because it wasn't like other music that I was hearing. And it was cool because they were playing hip-hop music, but with a positive spin on it. And there were guitars and harmonicas and different kinds of instruments. Actually, me and Anna went on a date in 2012 together. We were getting to know each other then, and uh, 
We went to the goat farm here in Atlanta, and we saw um, them play. Well, it was Creative Loafing's 40th anniversary, and I think that Arrested Development was celebrating their 20th anniversary as a band. I still listen to people every day and songs from this band like pretty regularly. I think that their sound is is as fresh today as it sounded back then. Investigation, maybe she was demonstrating, but nevertheless, I was pleased. I was pleased. My day was going great, and my soul was Hi, my name is Anna, and I play guitar and I sing in Shanti Shanti. The song I picked for today is Ma Rainey's um, Prove It On Me. And I picked it for different reasons. Um, the first one being that I love the song and I love the artist. And uh, I love the fact that Marini was a bold woman. And I'm, I want to challenge that energy since we have a new album out. I think it's the right kind of energy that I want to put out in the universe. I didn't know where she took it. I want the whole world to know. Sister, I do it. Ain't nobody caught me. you got to prove it on me. I like the idea of, of have, having this bold voice and having this energy that can be conveyed through lyrics and through uh, your presence. You know, we, unfortunately, I didn't get to see Marini. I would have to go back 100 years, but I can, we can still feel that, that energy that comes through with her beautiful voice. I mean to follow everywhere she goes. Hope that I'm crooked. I didn't know where she took it. I want the whole world to know. This day I do it. Ain't nobody caught me. Y'all got to prove it on me. Prove it on me. So it's a song about women congregating and uh, probably it's about an accusation of doing something promiscuous. And she's saying, well, you prove it on me. She says, I don't, I don't need no man. Like, I'm better off with my girls than <laughs> with any man. And I like that, too. And I think that sometimes that is true for us, uh, since we are a girl band. That kind of passage resonates with, with us. I like music from the Southeast. So when we think about the blues and when we think internationally speaking, uh, if you ask me that when I was in Italy, I would think about the Delta, you know, it's the place where everybody goes for blues. But actually the Southeast has a very interesting uh, tradition as well. So it's nice to celebrate somebody who was from here. Anna and Julia there from the all-female band Shanti Shanti. They're celebrating the release of their new album, Someone, Anyone, with a show at 529 in Atlanta on Friday. Details at our website, gpbnews.org. We're focusing on music made and played in Georgia all of this month, and it's just one of the ways that GPB illuminates things that are specific to Georgia. That is such a guiding part of our mission, bringing you issues and culture and characters rooted in this state. You know you can get national and international news from 
any number of sources, but GPB is a source you can rely on for bringing you those and a sense of place. And that's all thanks to you. I'm Virginia Prescott reminding you that our fall fun drive is in progress. If we haven't heard from you yet, make this the time you join GPB for the first time, maybe renew your support or better yet, become a GPB sustainer with a monthly contribution. Here's how to do it. 